I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Loving the Fighter. I'm your host, Charles DeGisco, and we're back, guys. We're back. Sorry for the delay this week. However, the good news is this is probably going to be the longest episode of all time. Uh, Omar Badar will be joining us a little bit later, and we're going to be having that discussion that I had mentioned last week about the Humans of New York post. And uh, full disclosure, we talked about it a little bit already, and um, you know, throughout the week. And honestly, like he he just explains things so well that I think it gives me the full picture. So like when I and when I'm like making a quick I shouldn't even say quick judgment but when I'm making what I feel uh, is the best or most reasonable response, he offers really good insight that'll then kind of make me think twice about it. So um, we're gonna have a good conversation about that and then I end up asking him pretty much well I assume I'll end up asking him pretty much how the world works and what's going on in uh, just in today's society and everything moving forward. But I had a pretty involved weekend, so let me tell you about that a little bit because uh, we got some great fight stuff to go over, but Saturday, my weekend started with, I went to the White House for the first time. So Friday, I went to the weigh-ins, and there I met Brad Penny, who was a Major League Baseball player, a very good pitcher, a World Series winner, two-time All-Star, the whole nine yards, stud. And he works for Cowboy Fight Series, doing fighter operations and uh, everything that goes with that. So he's pretty involved in Cowboy Fight Series, and me and him were shooting the shit Friday night. And it turns out that he was going to the White House too. Now, he was just going on a general tour, but uh, at the same time and everything. So I said, great, let's link up tomorrow. So I fast forward to tomorrow, which was Saturday, and I went to the White House, and I was going with my buddy Chris, who works the Secret Service, um, a photographer, and then Cosmo Alexander. So Cosmo Alexander is... Uh, one of the best kickboxers there is and is a very, very good MMA fighter. He recently knocked out Sage Northcutt. Um, when was that? That was at one one championship a few months back. And he was like, he threw that hard right hand and pretty much broke the guy's face. And I got to spend a lot of time with him. So uh, Grace came along as well. And we went and I got to see the whole White House, including some private tour shit, which was fucking neat. It was really, that was an experience. You know, I've, I've been here for a long time now, uh, I guess eight years. And for perspective, I was in Jersey for 12 years and I was in New York for seven years. So this is the second longest place I've lived uh, anywhere. The, the second longest I've lived anywhere. And it was, it was just a really good time. We got di- uh, lunch after, we were shooting the shit. You know, Cosmo's like a super cool guy, really funny. And, uh, and so was Chris. So I, I was able to then bring them to Cowboy Fight Series so that they can meet Cowboy. And then Saturday night, I had Cowboy Fight Series. I did commentary with Carl and Sadiq. And I would say this was probably our best show to date. I think there's some production things that still need to get worked out that aren't necessarily at the fault of the production team. But we've had so many change of locations. We've had so many things that are uh, getting altered here and there. You know, it's just so hard to run a top-notch show when nothing is set in stone and you can't plan for it. But it was a it was a really great night of fights. It was a great environment. It was broadcast live on Flow Combat, and I think that it's definitely trending towards that next step of this is going to become a big organization that people really want to be a part of. You know, I know it's expensive and, and I, I'm, you know, I, I know a little bit about the operations of 
running an MMA show, and it's not easy. But they have done a really, really good job. And I got to hang out with Cowboy a little bit more after the fight, getting to know him, which is always cool. Um, and then, you know, Brian Hamper, Brad Penny, and the rest of the guys from Sucker Bunch Entertainment, I got to meet all of them as well. So, you know, me, Sadiq, and Carl were on point. It, it just could not have been a better show. I think I made a few small mistakes, but from what everybody tells me, they don't notice them. But I do, you know, and, and that's that's something that I hold on to. You know, I'm like, all right, well, I got to tighten that up. I got to make that adjustment and uh, so on and so forth. But really just a great weekend. And uh, and on the personal side, we're continuing to push for the DMA opening at the new location. That November 1st target is still a go. Um, you know, as stressful as it's been, we're, we're really doing everything we can to make that happen and, and push forward. So more to come on that part, too. But we got a lot of fights to go and break down, and uh, and then we have Omar coming on. So I'm gonna move on because we got a lot we got a lot to talk about today. So UFC Copenhagen, we had the first fight I want to break down: Khalil Roundtree versus Ian Kutalaba. We remember Roundtree when he fought Eric Anders. He came with a very very nice uh, Muay Thai stance, a lot of steps, a lot of inside leg kicks, a lot of outside leg kicks, and he really really just took Eric Anders apart and didn't let Eric Anders. Uh, fight his fight. He kind of just took him out of the equation, and it was super. It was a super impressive win. And Ian Kutalabos had some wins and losses, but he's he's very much an athletic, strong individual who comes forward and and he's got good wrestling and, and hard, powerful striking, and he's just a freak athlete. So I thought this was a good matchup because Khalil Roundtree is quite strong himself. Roundtree's got, like I said, really improved striking, and his ability to get up after taking down is, has gotten. Uh, significantly improved since he lost the Ultimate Fighter finale. However, Kutalaba's boxing, I thought, was pretty crisp, but it was really just his ability to put forward pressure and not just, like, stop, right? What would happen is Roundtree would throw some punches, you know, Kutalaba would box with him, and then as soon as Roundtree threw, you know, set up that hard kick and threw it, Kutalaba grabbed it, but he didn't wait. He didn't stand in front of Roundtree so he could get hit or deal with elbows or knees or, or any other kicks. He would grab the leg and then immediately sweep the other leg and put, put Roundtree on the ground, right? He immediately clinched up with him. And when he would clinch, he would move out of the way so he couldn't get elbowed. When he would shoot in on a shot from a distance, he would adjust his head and take an angle so he was protected from those those downward elbows that we've seen in the past. And really, it was just Kutalaba. One thing that impressed me was... He, his, his footwork while wrestling, it looked like he really developed good MMA wrestling. You know, it's, he wasn't getting on a shot and hanging out there. He would get in on a shot, move around, make the adjustments, and then go. And I think that was the most notable thing he did that, that really won him the fight. And he did, he won the fight in a, by second round TKO, mostly because of those small adjustments he made. A lot of times you'll see wrestlers when they transition MMA, they get in on a leg and they'll stay there. Because in wrestling, that'll happen. You'll get in on a leg and you'll wait. But in MMA, if a guy is sitting on his leg trying to protect it, he's going to be throwing hammer fists. He's going to be throwing punches. He is not going to stop hitting you. Whereas in wrestling, they'll hang out there because they know that they only have to make a few small adjustments to get out of the way. And uh, that was something that that Kutalaba did that I think really paid dividends. I mean, I, I was very impressed. And uh, I think just moving forward, that, that was such a good win for Kutalaba just so he knows now, you know, that if his wrestling's failing, he, he has good boxing, he could deal with strikers. Um, his his counter defense, uh, excuse me, his counter wrestling and defense of his own is so strong that I think he's really getting to a point now where he's going to become a threat to that division. And he's a young guy. He's like 25, 26 years old. So, uh, you know, a big win for Kutalaba. A little disappointing for Roundtree, who I felt like got so much momentum from that last fight. But 
I have no doubt that we will we will see him back and, and get back in the swing of things sooner. The next fight was Gunnar Nelson versus Gilbert Burns. The next one I want to talk about, I should say. And Gilbert Burns has been taking really, really tough fights on late notice against very tough opponents. And he's been taking them at 170 pounds. Now, I met Gilbert when I worked for Combate, and I'll tell you guys, he wasn't that big. He's about five foot nine, but not particularly wide or large or anything like that. And I'm going to tell you guys, like, he's looked great. Gunnar Nelson, I think, is a like a, a stylistically a tougher matchup for him because Gunnar's stance is that like karate stance, and he's got really good wrestling and really good grappling. But for those that don't know, Dorino Gilbert Burns, he's uh, he was an ADCC competitor. He chose not to compete because he took this short notice fight. But he's a world class grappler. He's fought the very best in the world, include in jujitsu, including Gary Tonin. I mean, he's he's an active competitor. And quite frankly, he's almost always winning. Like his jujitsu is top notch. Very good wrestling, just a strong ground game, and he's really developed good boxing as well. Good crisp boxing. So Nelson's karate style is really good for range and outside leg kicks. You know, it's easier to check them. But the problem is that when you get on the inside, you have to you have to back up. And once somebody gets on the inside, in those first steps you take, you're in their range. So you're backing up while you're in their range if you let them crowd you. The other thing is, while it's good for dealing with light kicks because it's easier to check, you're more exposed to inside light kicks, right? Because you're you have that wider stance and you're on the top of your feet. And Gilbert Burns took advantage of that. He would, when when Nelson would come a little bit too close, he would throw that inside light kick. When he when he fainted that outside light, uh, the inside light kick, and Nelson adjusted his stance, he'd fire that outside light kick right along, like right around the calf, and. That was where he found enough success to get Gunnar Nelson to want to shoot for the takedown. And two things happened. When Nelson shot out in the open and he got the, got the takedown, immediately Gilbert Burns was attacking off his back. Arm bars, triangles, sweeps, reversals, guillotines, kimuras, just He was constantly attacking, and he didn't let Gunnar Nelson attack him. He didn't let Gunnar Nelson settle his position and throw strikes. He kept, he kept Gunnar Nelson backing up the entire time. The other thing was that when Nelson would shoot the takedown and Burns was up against the cage, he had such good cage defense that not only could Gunnar Nelson not take him down, it actually allowed Gilbert Burns to make the adjustment and take him down, right? Or adjust against the cage and then throw hard strikes of his own. And that's really, really where I felt like he took the fight out of Nelson. He landed a big flying knee. It felt like he was kind of always in control. And he ended up winning a unanimous decision. Gilbert Burns did. So a really good showing from Gilbert Burns. And uh, for Gunnar Nelson, I just think it's a surprising loss. But, I, I mean, I think this elevates Gilbert Burns so much because he's he's taken late notice fights at 170. He's winning. And he's looking great while he does it. And I'd really love to see some of these other guys, these other fighters who are cutting a lot of weight, take note and think about what weight class they want to go to. Because as you get closer to the top of that food chain in terms of talent in the top 10 division, you're going to be dealing with guys who aren't going to be cutting as much weight, but because they have so much confidence in their skills, right? Darren Till cuts a lot more weight than, say, Kamaru Usman or Colby Covington. But there's a reason that Kamaru Usman and Colby Covington are competing for the title, and Darren Till is now on the other side of it, right? Because the ascent is not the issue for a lot of these guys who cut big weight and they're just a little bit oversized, right? Darren Till had an amazing ascent as he made his way up the division, However, when he lost and then he started fighting more top competition, we saw him falter a little bit, right? And we saw that the damage that you take when you go through the heavier weight cuts. 
I think we're going to start seeing that more and more across the UFC. I think there's some adjustments they can make to encourage that. But by and large, that's a huge win for Gilbert Burns. And, you know, I would say I'm sure there's going to be somebody in the top 10 next for him, certainly the top 15. But who knows what late notice opportunities arrive for Gilbert Burns to take. The main event of the evening was Jack Hermanson versus Jared Cannonier. And Hermanson, he's coming off a big win against Jacare, and he has this style where he does a lot of movement, a lot of feints, he's constantly throwing jabs, he's he's just like always moving, right? It's almost like, like, reminds me of Clay Guida, but without the hair, right? Not quite hopping, but always stepping. And he's got a lot of momentum, especially after that win, and he's got really good grappling, good wrestling, and slick, slick submissions. There was a couple times in the fight where he was able to take Cannonier down, but he just couldn't really solidify the position. He would like, he suplexed him one time, he took him down, he almost had his back, but it, it was always these almost, he almost did this, he almost had his back, he almost, 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 right? And Cannonier did such a good job of controlling the wrists and never allowing grips to take place, never allowing his hips to be controlled. He was always on his way out and for forcing Hermanson to adjust to keep him on the inside, whatever that might be, whether it's inside the collar tie, you know, taking his back, so on and so forth. I thought that the biggest issue Hermanson had was that he wasn't really able to establish his striking at range, and Cannoneer controlled that range and never bid on any of those feints, right? So it was a direct cause and effect. Hermanson, his feints weren't really working, and he wasn't able to connect, and because he, the feints weren't working, Cannoneer was able to defend against the strikes that he really did commit to. He checked some kicks, he kept Hermanson at range, and then when Hermanson would really try to push the action and really come forward... That was when he capitalized, and he actually won that fight in the second round by Hermanson driving forward for a, for a shot that was a little bit too far out for the second time that night, and he landed a beautiful inside uppercut and then just followed that up and took the fight right out of Hermanson. So for Cannonier, I'm not going to say he leapfrogs Paulo Costa because I think that a win, Costa's win over Yoel is more significant than Cannonier's win over Hermanson. However, he's now put himself right at the top. I would say one spot behind Costa and then you have the winner of Kelvin Gastelum and Darren Till that can factor into that mix as well. So some interesting developments here in the middleweight division, especially as we see the departure of Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold, who are now at light heavyweight. Chakare Souza is also at light heavyweight. However, we then have these new fighters coming up and these new guys pushing into the top 10. It's a really interesting time because six months ago, you know, one through eight were names, recognizable names. But now... One through eight, it's not that they have the the star power that these other guys used to have, but they're really, really good, and they're winning big fights. So more to come on that, but for for Cannonier, I think you have to kind of see what happens here, get a little bit of lay of the land, but that's a a really big win for for Cannonier over, and his third in a row, by the way, since dropping down to middleweight. So more, now, I was just talking about Darren Till going up and then Gilbert Burns going up, but for Cannonier, I think he, he started at heavyweight, and then he was at light heavyweight, and I think at 185, he's really where he should be. Just proportionally, it makes a lot of sense. Those are the three fights I wanted to break down, but I have a lot to, to just acknowledge. So on this card, Ovin St. Preux won by another Von Fluchok. That makes his fourth, and the fighter that the Von Fluchok was named after has only won two fights with that choke. It's just that nobody had ever seen it. I mean, OSP has won four fights by that. So 
I think his problem is he takes so much damage before he f he gets that win. And there's, this fight was again, he was getting beat up all the first round, and then the second round, he managed to land that takedown, and that was that. Or rather, land that submission, and that was that. But still, it's just not good. It's not good to take that kind of damage. But it's undeniable that he has arguably the best Von Flew choke of all time, and maybe it should be called the OSP choke, or the Ovin St. Prue choke, or the St. Prue choke, or at any point it should be named after him, because he's now got four of those wins in a row. Another acknowledgement is a, a Greco-Roman Olympic wrestler, he was an Olympic silver medalist, Mark Madsen, he won by TK on the first round, and that was his UFC debut. Uh, he's coached by Martin Campman, and I think there's going to be good things coming his way just in the future here. He's... Uh, He's very, very good, and he's honest about his skills. He's honest about his development, and at 35, I think he is, maybe mid-30s for sure. I'm not sure how much time he has, but if he really pushes hard, he's going to get a push from the UFC to see what happens. So interested to see what happens there and more to come on that, uh, on him specifically. When we shift over to Bellator, we had Gegard Mousasi winning his rematch with Lyoto Machida by split decision and putting an epic promo together for a rematch of his own with Lovato Jr., who beat him a couple months back, um, specifically saying how he's on steroids and he looks like a horse. But it was actually a very, very funny interview. And Gegard seemed pretty fired up. And, and this is coming from a guy who... Uh, it looked like he kind of was on the other side of his career and he had talked that he wasn't really enjoying it and he was pretty open about that. It looked like he, he got a fire lit under him after that loss and, and he wanted it back. So he took the rematch with Machida, he won, and now it seems like he's getting ready here to compete again for the title and, and see what happens from there. Um, Patricio Ferreri, uh, he beat Juan Archuleta in a featherweight title fight and that was, I believe, the first round of the featherweight, featherweight tournament. He won by decision. And then from there, they, they rearranged the brackets, and there was there was some cool stuff that they're going to do with that tournament going forward. One thing I like that Coker does, if you're a title holder, every time you fight somebody, it's a title fight. Even though you're in the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals of the tournament, if you have a title prior to the tournament, every fight you have in the tournament is for the title. So I think that's pretty cool and uh, a big win for Patricio Ferreri. If we move over to boxing, Errol Spence beat Sean Porter by split decision. You know, it was back and forth, and I don't usually talk about boxing here, but Errol Spence has just got such good fundamentals. It's really interesting to see the way he picks guys apart, and I've, I think I've talked about this before, but he has some legendary stories of him in the gym, in the sparring room, uh, competing against guys like Adrian Broner and, and some of these other very, very tough, notable boxers, and just destroying them. And for those that don't know, Broner in the gym, in sparring, is known for being like a killer, an absolute killer. And apparently Errol Spence just like went right through him and just tuned him up. So I, I, I still think that Spence is arguably one of the best in the world. Um, I think Porter is underrated and he just fights really, really tough dudes and he loses these close fights. But I think we're making our way towards, I think we're making our way towards another title fight for Errol Spence soon against, I mean, there's a, there's a host of guys at 140. 40 to 154 pounds that, that Errol Spence could fight. So I'm interested to see what they do with that. I think there's going to be a matchup with Terrence Crawford in the near future, but I, I don't know for certain. And I, I really don't know the sport of boxing the way I know MMA, but I did want to point out that that fight was a very big fight and a very big win for Errol Spence. ADCC was this weekend. I feel like a fucking news reporter right now, but there's just so much I want to go over. And without this podcast being three hours long, like Joe Rogan's, it's I got I to gotta burn through it. Gordon Ryan won his division, 99 kilograms, and also won the absolute. And 
in the absolute finals, it was Bouchesha, who's like a legend of the sport against Gordon Ryan. And look, there's this weird thing that happens with Brazilians when they fight really tough non-Brazilians. It's like they don't really try and they just act like they're almost above it, right? Or they just don't engage and they don't really want to commit because to them, losing by points is just, or losing by disqualification or whatever it might be, is not as big of a deal as losing by submission or getting played out, right? They'd rather have a boring match that doesn't expose them than anything else. And we saw that with Cyborg when he fought Gordon Ryan because he just like slapped around Ryan and he couldn't really do anything and he just like was really rude. Like it wasn't like a jujitsu fight. It was almost like he was taunting Gordon Ryan, but Gordon was just like, hey man, I'll play whatever game you want. I will literally play whatever game you want. And uh, we saw it a little bit here. So with Bouchesha, who is not like Cyborg and that he'll talk any kind of shit or, or be disrespectful, but Cyborg, uh, Bouchesha ended up in a position with Ryan where he was like on top after a scramble, but Ryan was able to kind of get his hook in, got his butterfly hook in, and he immediately hit a beautiful sweep. And it forced Bouchesha to just scramble out of there. And Bouchesha did scramble out, and he did avoid it, and no points were given. But from that point of that fight on, nothing happened. And when I mean nothing happened, I mean Bouchesha just avoided to he avoided all any and all engagement with Gordon Ryan until eventually he picked up a penalty for stalling. And I th- I think we've seen this before with Ryan, where he doesn't have the most exciting matchups because guys just really avoid him. You know, Tim Spriggs, love that dude because he is just game to scrap with anybody. He doesn't give a fuck. He's going to try to take your head off. He's going to he's going to go after you. He's very, very active, and he fights a very good fight. And he fought Gordon Ryan. It was a good scrap, and Gordon Ryan eventually submitted him. But it was, you know, he went down fighting. He gave it his all. We've seen this with Brazilians in the past, but specifically, I shouldn't say all, but specifically the guys who are like legends of the sport, like Cyborg and now Bouchesha, they, they, they feel something from Ryan and they're like, you know what? I just don't want to put myself in this position. I don't want to put myself in a position to get, I don't want to say exposed, but to get turned, to get reversed, get put in a spot where he, they can't get back from. And, uh, and we saw it here. So that was a little disappointing. But by and large, I thought ADCC was so good this year. So, so good. It's a weird one. You want it to happen every year, but the fact that it happens every other year, I think really adds to the allure of it. It really makes it seem a lot more special, like similar to the Olympics. But I mean, for Gordon Ryan, I think it's undeniable to say that right now he is the best pound for pound jiu-jitsu fighter there is. And at this rate, he's going to be the best of all time. I mean, he just competes in everything and he beats everybody. I think the last one he lost... I believe he lost to IBJJF in 2017 to Denise, Denise, I'm not very good with Brazilian names, but D-I-N-I-Z, and uh, then he beat him in absolute, so he won his weight division at 99, he lost uh, at, at heavyweight, I think, or vice versa, he lost to him at his in his division and then beat him at heavyweight, nevertheless, I think that was like two years ago, I haven't really heard of him losing since, and I, I could be wrong, I think I know jiu-jitsu better than I know boxing, but I certainly don't know it as well as I know MMA. But career track record aside, I mean, he's just so, so good. I really just don't know what's next for him. I think you have to just keep fighting all these champions. I hope he fights Galval, who looked great. He won his super fight. I'd love to see that scrap. I'd like to see him continue to fight a lot of these guys in the division, right? Anywhere from Craig Jones to uh, Tim Spriggs. Just the, the whole lineup, man. There's a lot of guys for him to fight that I'd love to see. But man, oh man, is he good. 
it's it's crazy to watch him just take the fight out of people just by being himself. I do want to preview next uh, this weekend's UFC, excuse me, uh, just two fights, the co-main and the main event. It's going to be in Australia at Marvel Stadium, which is uh, pretty awesome that Australia named a stadium after uh, Marvel comic books. And then after this, Omar is going to be on. So the UFC fights that are coming up this weekend, the one I want to talk about is Al Iaquinta versus Dan Hooker. Last we saw Iaquinta, he lost to Cowboy Cerrone. He was on a tear. He beat Kevin Lee. He was he was really like picking up momentum, and then he lost there. That was a tough fight. He's had he's had some fights with legends really of the sport recently, and I think that that fight kind of shows his weaknesses in that he doesn't really deal well with range, especially with the combination of it's just kickboxing. He struggles with a little bit. Dan Hooker is much longer than Cowboy, but he doesn't quite have the kicks that Cowboy has. Right? He's got better boxing. I would say he's got a little bit more power. I shouldn't say better boxing than Cowboy. He's got more power in his hands than Cowboy does, and he's a little bit longer, but doesn't have the threat of the kicks, and he doesn't have nearly as good wrestling. So this fight is going to be interesting because I think Hooker's got great stand-up abilities, uh, and what I mean by that is not counter-wrestling, but when he gets taken down, he does a really good job of standing back up, and he's not afraid to make the fight ugly. I mean, he will make it ugly. For Al, he actually has really underrated counter-boxing, and I think his ability to wrestle and scramble and make the fight a little bit ugly, I think that's going to play dividends here. Because I think that's what's going to allow him to get on the inside of Hooker, get the takedown, and take some of Hooker's strikes away. The only thing I see that could be a problem is that Ally Aquinta kind of has a hunched over stance. You know, he kind of stands low, like a combination of a wrestler and a boxer. And... Hooker is known for some for just having vicious knees. He's got really good hooks and really good knees that he times well. He actually knocked out my boy Jim Miller with one. So I, I see that being a challenge for Ally Quinta, but I don't see this fight going quite the same way as Cowboy Cerrone did, right? He's fighting uh, Hooker in his hometown. He's fighting, well, I should say in in friendly territory, right? He's fighting, taking the fight in enemy territory, friendly for Dan Hooker. And he has to deal with a very significant reach disadvantage, which he hasn't always dealt with in the past. But what I do notice is that he's got that forward progress and pressure that allows him to pick up wins that I want to say he really shouldn't get. Now, it's not a five-round fight, and I think that hurts him. I think it was a five-round fight. He'd have a much better shot. But I think that if he can make this fight ugly, he could he could get a decision. I don't think he's going to finish Dan Hooker, but I do think he can get a, get a decision, but he's got to really watch those knees and really watch those hooks because Dan Dan Hooker is a killer. No pun intended. The main event, Bobby Knuckles, friend of the podcast Emily Manna's favorite fighter against Israel Adesanya. <sighs> you know, I'm really torn on this one because I'm a huge Robert Whitaker fan, but I will tell you guys that Kelvin Gastelum Right, who was the inter, uh, He fought for the interim title against Adesanya back in April. Gastelum's style is very forward, in your face, hard one twos. He he just keeps the fight tight and in the pocket. Whitaker is much more about range control, right? I think that Gastelum was a much better matchup for Adesanya than Whitaker is, even though I feel that Whitaker is a better striker than Gastelum is, right? I don't think anybody could fight Yoel Romero for 25 minutes and do, or I'm sorry, 50 minutes. He fought him twice, two five-round main event fights. I don't think anybody could do what Whitaker has done and had that kind of success against that many, that long for Yoel Romero, against Yoel Romero. But I'm a little nervous for him here because he's not known for his offensive wrestling. He has it, believe it or not, but he's not known for it. And 
I don't really see him fighting that style of fight against Adesanya. Adesanya is going to have trouble with a guy like, I actually think Chris Weidman, somebody who's got good boxing, who's going to get in your face, and is strong enough to hold you down. Those are the types of fights. Somebody will you know, keep you up against the cage and make it ugly. Those are the type of guys, I think, at this point in Adesanya's career, who are going to give him trouble. He struggled with it a little bit. He fought Martin Vittori, and that was a good fight. It was it was an ugly fight. Vittori's a very big, strong middleweight who didn't really bite on too much and stayed in Adesanya's face. But that was it. I feel like Adesanya has improved so much since then. So, so much. And for Whitaker, you know, he likes using his kicks. He likes sneaking them in there. And those are the types of things. Like, the tricks that Whitaker uses are the types of things that I don't think will work on Adesanya. And that's the part that has me a little bit nervous. His skills and his uh, assets that really open doors for him, I just don't see them working against Adesanya. Now, what I will say is, Rob Whitaker is extremely resilient, and there he's just got so much of a dog in him, and he will fight and fight and fight. I got to be honest, though, I don't know how he wins this. I don't, I don't really know how it goes. I actually think that he's going to probably lose a decision to Adesanya, but I think he's going to get hurt quite a bit. And I don't, you know, it's weird to say because I like both guys, but I'm actually, I like Whitaker a lot. He's, he's like super quiet. He's a humble dude. He's had some really, he's had so many challenges happen that had nothing to do with his performance, right? Or, or his uh, problems. It was always just like medical stuff or injuries and things like that. And I want him to win. I like him at middleweight. I, I think he's actually probably the best middleweight, but I just think this is such a bad matchup for him unless he has a very strong game plan and ways to deal with Adesanya's just elite-level kickboxing, I think it's going to be a long night for him. Unfortunately, I'm going to be at a wedding. So, yeah, I won't see it. But, nevertheless, I uh, I think that's my breakdown. I think Iaquinta, by decision, in a rough, ugly fight uh, where he wins... And I think Israel Adesanya by decision where he just really hurts Whitaker and Whitaker just kind of gets through it based on sheer will. I just don't see Whitaker's way to win unless he catches Adesanya, but I just don't... His style is not really... Like, he sets things up so well, right? He uses his his setups and his striking to to open doors and and land hard shots, but against a guy like Adesanya, your setups have to be wrestling-based and level change-based to really open up that door for the strike to land. So... There you have it. That's my breakdown. And now we're going to welcome Omar Badar, who is going to educate me on life, like always. But we're going to talk a little bit about this post, which we're going to reread. All right, guys. Today we have repeat guest Omar Badar. Omar, say hello, brother. Hey, hey. How's it going? It's going. So today I kind of told the guests already that you're going to be educating me on a variety of things as usual. (laughs) But first, and I kind of talked about this on last week's episode, you sent me that, that Humans of New York post, mm-hmm. and I wanted to talk to you about this, and I, I also told them earlier in the episode that you kind of already changed my opinion about it. <laughs> you know, we talked <laughs> Tuesday, yep. but I still think there's a lot of like valuable pieces of discussion to have here, so take yep. it away, man. So, yeah, I mean, I think the whole discussion came from the fact that when I shared this, we seemed to have slightly different, I mean, I don't think that we fully necessarily disagreed, right. but we had different points of emphasis in that... When I read it, my main takeaway was that what a jackass this guy is. And then as a side note, it's like, it's interesting that he learned how to develop game right. and, and be able to get himself laid. And then for you, it was the opposite emphasis. Oh, isn't Correct. it great that he has game? Like, this is amazing. Yeah, but he's a and bitter then, asshole. Yeah, the <laughs> asshole was the, was the, was less. Yeah, was, was the minor footnote. And I think before we get to that, it makes sense. I mean, 
Right. Part of the disagreement comes from the fact that we have very different life experiences. And whenever you hit a particular topic that people are coming at from different experiences, it's very difficult to agree about a particular position without walking your way all the way up through building block by block on all the points of agreement, building the correct context that we both would agree on, and then plugging something into that context to see how it fits right. into our framework. So I find it interesting to just think about morality in general and like how we judge things that are right and wrong, is that when you think about the state of nature, animals, if uh, a lion kills a deer, you don't think that's wrong. You think it's just a lion killed a deer. That's good. Like, is it good or bad? It's like, no, it's not bad. It's fine. It's good. And if you think of a deer escaping from a lion, you also can't call that bad. It's not like, how dare you? The lion was supposed to eat you. You screwed up. You know, you think good for you that you got away. So no matter what happens in the state of nature, we don't have a moral sense of good and bad. But that's not what we chose to pursue when it comes to human interactions. So when you think of a caveman picking up a rock and hitting another caveman in the head and stealing his wife, you think, okay, from a state of nature perspective, you might think there's no judgment on that. It just is. But we don't think that way when it comes about human relations. We made the decision to invent morality because that's not the kind of society that we want to live in. We want to live when it's something a little bit more regulated, less scary, less chaotic. Hmm. And so we invented rules about what's right and what's wrong. And we kind of like as a society or different societies tried to work our way through these rules so we can regulate our interactions. And I think it comes down to a simple principle in general that was never applied consistently from the beginning, but the principle is coercion is bad and persuasion is good. <clears throat> if you want something from someone, taking it by force, forcing them to give it to you, that's not cool, you know. But if you can say, hey, let's make a deal, how about you give me this and I give you that, then that's, that's you know, becomes a much that that nobody can object to that it's just something that you're talking other people into doing because ultimately as humans we need to do things for each other we can't do everything um, by ourselves and it's obvious when you look at it from you know putting dating aside entirely just from sort of like interactions you teach martial arts if somebody comes to you and says hey you have to teach me martial arts or i'm going to kill you not cool right hey i'm going to pay you x dollars a month and you teach me martial arts in return great, let's make a deal. And there becomes a bit of a shady um, area in between coercion and persuasion where there's a little bit of game involved where you're not fully straight with someone about what it is that you're after, um, but you're trying to be smart about it. Um, we see it in business. You know, when you're trying to strike a business deal, sometimes you're trying to get the edge in the business deal. Um, when you think about any kind of interaction, there's always an attempt to sort of like shift the ground a little bit to play it in your favor. And that middle ground is not always bad. Like when you think of, you know, I like to call that middle ground manipulation, but you can see how there can be elements of persuasion and in, in manipulation that are not f crossed over entirely to the point to where it's bad. So like, for example, if, um, you think torture is wrong and you want to convince people that torture is wrong and so you make a film that depicts torture and you show it to people and it has emotional scenes that show you how awful torture can be and it's part of your advocacy about outlawing policies of torture as a matter of technicality there's a little bit of emotional manipulation there but 
it's well-intentioned manipulation. You're not trying to compromise the person's emotional state to support something that they would not otherwise support. You're simply trying to make an emotional argument. Part of the argument is this feels terrible and we should not let anybody go through it. And so that's not the kind of manipulation that's bad in a sense. You know, it still, to me, falls in the area of persuasion because you're just trying to make a case, an honest case, to the best of your ability on why somebody should support something. Um, but you can think of examples where the manipulation crosses the line. Uh, when you think of people who claim to be psychics and can speak to dead people. Mm, this is, this um, is a good example. Yeah. You know, part of game is knowing how to basically look for vulnerable people who are in need of an emotional connection with a loved one who passed away. And that's how a lot of these people make money, is that they pretend they put out emotional triggers. I mean, when you watch it, really, there are YouTube videos that break down how people do that. It's really impressive. It's incredibly highly intelligent. You have to be extremely skilled to know how to not be exposed as a fraud, but yet at the same time, just feed off enough information to the person across from you that they start filling in the information for you. And then you just sort of like go back and forth in this conversation. And the next thing you know, even though the other person, the vulnerable person who lost a loved one is the one who's giving you all the information, you somehow trick them into thinking that this is all stuff that you were telling them. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly high, high level skill and it doesn't work on everyone. If you deal with somebody who's a skeptic, they'll be able to catch you. But if you deal with somebody who's vulnerable enough, you'll be able to trick them and they'll fall for it. Um, and so now I think that most of us would recognize that that is bad manipulation. If you're looking to prey on people who are vulnerable and are in emotionally compromised situations and you try to use that to your advantage so you can make a buck off of it, that's a bad person who does that. And then now back to dating the situation. I think it makes sense to read this guy's um, definitely post. So the first half of the post, the guy explains that he was an incel and that he developed game and now is a pickup artist and he's really good at it. But I think it gets interesting in the second half where he says, right now I have over 1000 numbers in my phone. It's a bit like gambling. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't, but you always have the chance for sex. There are so many tricks to learn. Now, We'll give a pass on the word trick. It could mean something, you know. Tips, just, yeah. game, whatever, right? But that's just sort of like in the back of your mind. It, it, you know, you put it, you leave it hanging. It's like this word could go in either direction. Then he goes on to say, women have emotional brains. They get addicted to feelings. You can use that to your advantage. Use that to your advantage. In other words, use, using someone, whenever you talk about using mm -hmm. somebody else or using somebody's weakness or emotional well-being or, or emotional vulnerability or whatever, that is obviously an exploitative mindset. Um, to your advantage, again, taking advantage of somebody else. He goes on to say, the first time you meet her, tell her she looks amazing, but never give her a full compliment again. In theory, that could be still part of game, you know, talking about how to lay out your compliments in a way that generates interest between people. Fine. But he says, tell her she looks good in this lighting. Keep her insecure with half compliments. Keep her feeling like there is something wrong with her. This, this to me is the decisive line keep somebody feeling like there's something wrong with them now he reveals that his game is to compromise the other person emotionally in order for him to take advantage of them and be able to get laid like she's not good enough for you like she needs sex for validation i'm going on quoting at this point mm -hmm. and then he says of course it's manipulation but why should i care i've been manipul i've been manipulated many times in my life of course it's manipulation so at this point i think what this guy is describing is the fact that his game is based on compromising other people emotionally and then taking advantage of that to his, um, so that he can get laid, basically. And 
I don't want to be one of those people who plays down the importance of social dynamics or pretend that you don't need game at all to, you know, to be able to get laid. Like, sure, all of us have experienced this, I think, when we were young. My idea of being, you know, of, of trying to prove my worth to a girl that I liked when I was a teenager would be to say things like, I would take such amazing care of you. You're wonderful. I will be the person you can depend on. And just that level of earnestness does not really generate interest on the other side. They'll run for the hills. For, exactly they they and you know like it's unsurprisingly and i think that part of it is because you're always trying to create a dynamic where you're somebody who's a high value target that is worth chasing after Mm -hmm. and the more eager you are the less you know the more it must then therefore reasoning comes that you're not high enough value that you're really desperate to for a chance with someone and so part of the game that we play is that you try to elevate yourself and you try to play aloof, distant, not over-eager, um, trying to convey to the other person is that even though if you're on the inside, you're really eager for their attention and you're really all into them, you give them the impression that they don't have your full attention and that you're just kind of, um, you know, you you need to impress me in order for me to pay attention to you. That's part right. of the game that we play. And it's something that you and I talked about is that ultimately it's about sort of elevating your position and some people who don't who don't have enough value on their own to elevate themselves don't know how to play that game which could legitimately be showing up to a club with attractive women as a way of sort of like demonstrating your high value or having a wingman who talks you up about you being the guy and this and that people who don't have that game sometimes rely on the alternative which is instead of raising themselves up they, they bring, bring the, the other, other person, person down. down right um and Again, there are minor playful ways you could play that game with negs and whatever, but then there is, quote, make her feel like there's something wrong with her, end quote. That's not just a playful little neg. That's actually emotionally predatory, and that's why I think that this guy is a scumbag at the end of the day. So, first off, when you explained all that, specifically when you like brought out the word tricks, so I and you, you kind of left it open-ended here, but... I think you're right in that if you're using the word trick or using it to your advantage, already that's making it seem like it's a win-loss situation, Mm -hmm. right? For me, the line that did it was, of course, it's manipulation. I'm like, okay, so clearly what you're trying to do is you're trying to manipulate somebody and take advantage into into getting laid, Mm -hmm. right? And to me, that means usually like lying, making them believe that in this case, because you're not high enough quality, right? You're making them believe that they're not good enough. But... What I what I kind of want to talk about is a lot of what he was doing before. For example, a neg. Mm-hmm. Like I had a girl one time. I was I think I told this to you over text. It was like I was at a pool and uh, like she was busting on me and she was like, "Yeah, your abs are all right, but they'd look better if your arms were bigger." Mm-hmm. And it was her way of like acknowledging that I had a six pack, almost eight pack. This goddamn yep. right. But that like I was still felt like, wait, my arms aren't big. You know what I mean? Now, thankfully, I I didn't bite on that. Yeah. And I've never been a fan of negs myself because I think it's more a reflection of a lack of value on your part, yep. right? Like we talked about this the other night. Like if Brad – do you think Brad Pitt is given half compliments? No, he it. gives you a compliment. That's probably the most powerful thing he could do. Mm-hmm. And if he tells you you're beautiful every day, you're probably like through the moon. Yep. But if Joe the plumber – and I hate using Joe the plumber as an example because yeah. plumbers – we talked about this. Yeah. Union guys make a ton of money, work their own schedule. Never going to go out of business, right? Yeah. But if Joe the plumber tells you you're beautiful every day, 
maybe by the third or fourth time, it doesn't mean nearly as much. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the second time. So negs when done in a playful way, you know, like he uses the word like make her feel like there's something wrong with you. That young lady who said that to me didn't make me feel like anything was wrong with me. Yeah. It was like playful teasing, not too dissimilar. It's just like elevated from the schoolyard, yeah. right? So, and we didn't read the first half, and I think we probably should, but that whole first half is him saying like I was an incel, I had nothing, and then I re- I pretty much read how to become a pickup mm-hmm. artist, and a lot of the problem with when you take somebody who lacks social skills, like an involuntary celibate, which is what an incel stands for, yep. they they take things so literally, mm-hmm. right? So there's the nuance of the way you, you say it, yeah. Like the and this way this kid was autistic too. I mean, I think yeah, that's this kid was autistic. He he, made, he yeah. says it, and that, I think that's incredibly important in regards to the lack of emotion he has about it Mm -hmm. and the words he chooses to describe it. Because if you took somebody else who was a little bit more socially sound and they did the same thing, they could have framed it in a much better way. Right? So, again, and I I say that full well knowing, as the second he says, sure, it's manipulation, but I've been manipulated my whole life, it's like, no, you, you haven't been manipulated. My first thought is what you've probably done, and this is an assumption, is you've probably tried to be the nice guy I say that in quotes because you want something in return. So you're no different than the quote-unquote douchebag you probably disliked. You were just trying to get what you wanted through the veil of kindness, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, manipulation. And this is what like nice guys, and I say this in quotes, will get all bent out of shape. Like girls like douchebags. They like that fo- like the football player, the jock, the guy. He's like so easy going. He's good. They're so shallow. They're this. Yep. The girls won't look at me. It's like, but you're only being nice because you want something from them. Yeah. You know? And – you probably didn't expect me to talk I, about this. I did not go that direction, but it's good. Yeah. I'm not trying to throw you for a loop, yeah, yeah, you know. It's good. Um, but it, it drives me crazy because it's the same thing, right? Like you're trying to ma- manipulate through kindness, whereas this guy's trying to manipulate through half compliments. Mm-hmm. And I think if you took somebody, and so bringing it full circle, I think if you took the same strategy that this guy learned and clearly just read and practiced and drilled, you could have a lot more success, you know. Oh God, I'm just gonna give you a firsthand not, uh, comment. So there's this one girl I know. She's friends with my sister. Her name is Hillary. Mm-hmm. Stunning. Thousands of followers on on Instagram and stuff. And she was like venting to me one day about this guy. And pretty much he was hitting with negs. And I was just like, yeah, that that shit doesn't work. And she was like, she like looked at me and she was like, honestly, it 100% does. It does yeah. And I said to her, and I think I like blew her mind a little bit. And I was just like, only if you're low quality. Mm-hmm. And she kind of like sat back for a second, right? And, and then I felt bad because I think you could use a playful neg like that girl did to me. And, like, I've had women do them that are just flat out mean, you yeah. know? Like, some, some girls will flirt the same way some dudes are, which is kind of just be an asshole, yeah. right? <laughs> but I think that a little bit of that is just, like, the nuance in the delivery. So yeah. even though he used the word um, trick instead mm-hmm. of just, you know, strategy or take advantage of yeah. instead of, you know, to level the playing field. Mm-hmm. Like, you could, you, you could change the word. So that all to me was a little bit more acceptable. Yeah. Um, it's just until he starts talking about like hard manipulation where it's like, it's clear you don't learn how to manipulate through reading the art of seduction, yeah. right? You learn how to manipulate through being a piece of shit. Yeah. You know what I'm so, saying? You know, it's funny because you bring that up. I mean, ultimately, we learned that from the time that we're children. When you want something from your parents, you cry. Like, there's always strategies to get somebody's attention. And right, the, to me, the line between persuasion and manipulation boils down to what is it that you're after is that ultimately if what you're trying to get somebody to do is something that you view as mutually beneficial it's an agreement that you think that they would want to be a part of uh, and you're doing it in good faith 
you know, the person who's trying to use kindness to get someone, um, they probably think that, hey, you know, we'll be good for each other, we'll be good together, this would be a good thing. That's, that's what you're trying to convey through that strategy. And that falls in the bucket of persuasion. Even if, it, okay. even if it includes emotional triggers, the same way we talked about sort of the example of trying to um, demonstrate in an emotional way why a particular policy is better than another policy, and that's why we should be pursuing this. Um, it's perfectly legitimate when you're talking about we should end the cruelty that's happening at the border with migrant children is to show migrant children crying, saying, you took my parents away from me. You know, that's right. emotional an attempt at at emotional persuasion pulling at the heartstrings yeah but it's it's legitimate because ultimately what you're doing is something that is done in good faith is that what you're ultimately after is getting people to change policy because of the way these children are impacted so there's no dishonesty in play and manipulation by contrast is when you're trying to get somebody to do something either by distorting the reality of what is happening so you're flat out tricking them you know if you pretend you're going to teach somebody martial arts and they pay you and it turns out you don't know what the fuck you're talking about and you just literally make up some dumb moves that never work right. anywhere and you go, all right, I made my buck and I'm moving on. There is dishonesty in what you're selling in that context and even though you never coerce the other person, it is obvious that you've manipulated them into doing something that they would not have done otherwise had they, been, had, they had the full information and the full picture about what was going on. And alternatively, if you're not misrepresenting what is being offered and how it could be advantageous to both sides, you could be compromising the other person emotionally in order to get them to do something that they would not otherwise do or want to do once they're not emotionally compromised anymore. So the example I think that comes to mind that we talked about last time too is the movie um, Wedding Crashers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which would never get made today. Yeah. (laughs) Never get made today. Of sort of... You know, the story, for those who don't know the movie, it's these guys who pretend to be people they're not, um, pretend to have jobs that they don't have, and they show up to these weddings, and they know that the climate in a wedding is so much about love and romanticism and all that, that women are more emotionally susceptible to wanting to sleep with someone. And so they go and crash weddings pretending to be these other dudes, and, you know, they act really emotional and romantic and this and that just to get women into bed. And then immediately afterwards, the women figure out that, oh, this guy is actually never going to call me. This was all a ruse. It was just mm-hmm. it was a, a pretense. And then I think that if you just watch the first half of the movie, I wouldn't be surprised that we have a culture that really amplifies game as such a great thing, that you could have people coming away thinking, those guys are great. Isn't it amazing that they have game and they just crash these weddings and pretend and, and, and can sleep around? Um so I think the movie makers ended up exaggerating it another step to sort of make a point where Will Ferrell, the character that he plays, who's supposed to be the guru for these guys, says weddings are good, but if you really want an easier time getting laid, funerals is where it's at, is where women are at their most emotionally vulnerable and are willing to give it up, and that's what you should do. Um, and ultimately, the message of the movie is that this is a really shitty thing to do. You are being exploitative. And that, to me makes a clear line between the kind of game where you're creating a social dynamic that makes the person want you, which is a thousand percent legitimate, versus either disassembling, either sort of not being honest about your intentions, giving the impression that you want more than just casual sex and then once you get it, you're bouncing, or you're making the other person feel emotionally 
in need of your validation so they can feel good about themselves, that you've made them feel worthless to some extent, that they need to feel worthy by having your approval and doing anything that they possibly could to get it. And I'll just say that I know that the dynamic on this one, it's not, it's not always guys towards women, right? I was in a manipulative relationship when I was younger, when I was 18 years old. I was stuck in a relationship where a woman who was a few years older than I am was constantly lying to me, um, made me, basically trapped me in the relationship by every time me trying to leave would make me feel like I would, was a really shitty person for wanting to leave. Um, and somehow that I was being cruel and horrible and that kind of like got me stuck. And by the time I was done with that relationship, looking back at it, I'm like, holy shit, I was really manipulated into that relationship and it's a it's a shitty dynamic so and i'm not suggesting that it's only something that guys do to, to girls of course of but course, yeah. but at the same time i think you can't ignore the power dynamic that exists in society in general um in that and i think it comes from sort of evolutionary time like when we, you know from hundreds of years ago and if not thousands of years ago when women needed men to survive a woman could not survive in the state of nature without a man and even more recently than that just a couple of hundred years ago when the work uh the job market was dominated exclusively by men it was not acceptable socially acceptable for women to work that a woman literally could not make a living without a man providing that living and so you have a dynamic where women were conditioned to want to sort of make themselves desirable to men that's part of the dynamic that is part of their upbringing that this is really important and women tend to date guys who are older the opposite does not happen as often when you're older you're smarter you're more socially aware that gives you power in that relationship and with that power just comes the tendency for guys to be in a position to be emotionally abusive towards women more often than the opposite but that does not mean in by any stretch that women never do that it's just that it's more common in one way than the other so all right so there's there's a few things with that that First off, I completely agree with, but then secondly, I also think that it's taking a little bit of credit away from, I don't want to say like taking credit away from women, but that the dynamic is not, I think it's a little bit more person to person as opposed to more so men than women. And what I mean by that is throughout a woman's prime, physical prime, mm-hmm. not take it, so biological prime, let's yeah. put it that way. That's actually a more equitable way yeah. to say it, right? Biological prime from 18 to 26. When it comes to the dating market, they have all of the power. They dictate all of the terms. Mm-hmm. And I think a good example of that is if you go to a club, and this is going to prove your point a, a bit too, the tables are filled with women in their very early 20s, paid for by men in their usually early 30s, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes late 20s if they're, if they're pretty good. But by and large, the, the resources that the women are attracted to generally don't come until the guy gets a little bit older. Right, assuming she's not paying for them herself. Yep. The the overall dynamic, though, I have a I, I don't quite buy into men being more manipulative or emotionally abusive to women. I think it really just depends on that individual, right? So I'm not saying like, oh, you know, it's it's fifty. I, I kind of almost feel like it is fifty fifty. But if you look at divorce statistics, you know how. The majority of divorces are, are instituted, in, uh, initiated. Initiated. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I was going to say instigated. Mm-hmm. Initiated by women, yep. and they tend to receive alimony like ninety three percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Something it's over ninety percent of the time they're the ones who are getting the financial aid. Yep. I think that 
alone, that type of legal arrangement takes a lot of that power away, right? So not only do they have the power in the dating, just from dating economics, mm-hmm. but I think it also takes away quite a bit of that, um, you need me so you can't go anywhere. And and maybe not, you know, for, for years and years prior to this, but really I would say from like the 70s on, it's the society has just changed. And now more than ever, I think that there's there's so much room. People are getting married later. They're having second, third careers. They're having second, third marriages, you know? Mm-hmm. And the other thing that, and this is just a quick sidebar, the majority of marriages that fail are failed by the same people, meaning the divorce, is, the divorce rate hasn't actually gone up among people getting married. It's multiple divorces from the it's same people. It's multiple divorces from the same people. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting, right? And th- you made so many good points. So the, when we were talking about game, Right, so the wedding crashers analogy I think is perfect because I think that's the perfect example of manipulation, mm-hmm. and it was glorified in the movie. But by and large, I don't think that's exactly what he was doing, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's game. I think that's lying to get laid, yeah. which to me is the scummiest thing. Right, like I have a sister, you know what I mean. I have a lot of female friends, and like that to me is just such a such a grimy move. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I always prided myself on the fact that I left women better than. Uh, when I met them, meaning not like I improved their lives, meaning they never were like, damn, Charles, I thought we were something like what happened. Right. I gave you one example of this time where I was, uh, I was in my early twenties and this was right before, excuse me, right after my first girlfriend who was kind of like you also a bit older than me and abusive as shit. She got a little physical a couple times and I just had to take it. But really it was more like emotional. Like she was just like deep manipulation, just like, and cruel. Right. But hot as shit. So at, at, at 20 years old, mm-hmm. what the hell was I going to do, right? Yeah. A 25-year-old, good-looking blonde woman, she's like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, she was my boss. Yeah. I was like, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> yep. And then two months in the road, I was just like, what did I do? Yeah. You know? But this 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 very nice lady, uh, she was like 32. I was 21. She was a career woman. She had a lot going for her. And we kind of had this like fun, flirty, casual thing. And, uh, and we hooked up a couple times. And then actually we hooked up once like had sex I should say we hooked up a couple of times but we only had sex uh, one night and I kind of was like alright cool scratch the ass what I what I refer to as post nut syndrome mm-hmm. right and I meant everything I said I enjoyed my time with her and then she took me out for dinner one night and she pretty much was like so you pretty much just stopped talking to me after we had sex and I didn't think about it that way I was just like oh I, I thought that's kind of what we were looking for you know I mean mm-hmm. you're 32 I'm 21 like I didn't see this going anywhere and yeah. I said it like that yeah. those weren't the exact words I thankfully used a little bit more judgment yeah. you know? <laughs> but my mindset was like oh I thought this was like the perfect situation for you yeah. I'm like the fun younger guy you know a lot of energy and like you're the attractive old woman this is great it's a win-win and she got really upset and she just got quiet for a minute she said that wasn't what I thought mm-hmm. and I remember thinking to myself like oh man you fucked up like this is the last time I'm ever going to be in this situation because yeah. she was hurt and I, I don't want to say like I'm not going to say like I did anything wrong and I don't mean that like I'm not admitting it. I just mean like, I was a 21-year-old guy. Yeah. I was not in control. I was not in the driver's seat. Yeah. But I made a conscious decision from that point on to, if I'm going to move forward with things, I need to make sure that it's very light. Now, I don't come right out and say like, hey, listen, I'm only trying to fuck you tonight. And then if we don't hook up, like, hey, I'm not going to yeah. see you. But I keep things light. Never let deep conversations happen. Just kind of keep things very sur- very surface level. And um, it was, it led to more success than I could have ever hoped to have. Mm-hmm right? That I felt was game. I wasn't big on negs. I would tease. I would get teased back. 
yep. but it wasn't like what that girl said to me or what this guy is implying yeah. because I think that implies a lack of value, mm-hmm. right? I think I said that a couple of minutes ago yeah. and I think so he lacks value, but the other part of it is also that's how you learn to create attraction when you have nothing going for you, right? Yeah. Cold approaches, going right up to a woman you don't know, making her laugh, a lot of eye contact, yeah. effectively like finding something to communicate about that's going to create positive feelings yeah. to hit to what he said, playing to the feelings. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean taking advantage of a woman's feelings for you, but just playing to how, how you make her feel, right? Yeah. Like when women would go out on dates with me, I would make them feel fun and happy and sexy and all these different things. And that usually led to them wanting to fuck, right? Yeah. But I wouldn't take that away either. I wouldn't try to use it against them. It was just like, hey, this is how, like, this is a mutually beneficial relationship because I looked at sex for them as just as much of a win for them as it was for me, right? So that is, that was kind of, and I'm using myself as an example, not to talk about like conquest, but just the the lessons I learned from not keeping things light and fun and, Mm -hmm. and happy and all that. Um, while also, I say light and happy, I just mean me and that older woman had deeper conversations. We kind of connected on some deeper level and I kind of prevented that from happening. So nobody really, when I, when I would go on these kind of, when I was single and I would go on these tears, nobody was getting their feelings hurt. It was a positive experience all around. So that to me is game, but, but wedding crashers, that's like real manipulation. Mm -hmm. And what he says in this, in this quote, when he says, of course it's manipulation, that to me, I was like, okay. He's not, what he's saying here is not what he's doing. Yep. He must be doing something else because a neg, making a girl feel, you're not making a girl feel insecure. The, the, with a neg, the real goal is like, wait, what, does he not think it looks good in regular light? What, let me find out more. Let me pry. It's not that anything wrong is wrong with you. It just yep. kind of leaves a gray area of, instead of being told you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Yeah. It's, wow, you look great today. I really like that outfit on you when it's like, this lighting's like this, that's your look. Yep. It's a compliment that makes you think, that makes you feel something. If you keep saying you're beautiful, there's no feeling to it. So, and I know what he read, by the way, Mm -hmm. because I I don't, I mean, I've not read it for my own skills because I don't really connect with the pickup artist community, but I've definitely, I read like Artist Seduction by Robert Greene. I've read, um, well, 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene as well. And all of these subjects are kind yeah, of touched of them, on that. I think they called the mystery method that was popular for a while too. I See, know. I didn't read that one, but I know, I know what it's about. I mean, a lot of them are just regurgitating the yeah, same things. Yeah. And some of it's interesting, but at its core, it's really kind of more about making yourself seem like, like the best example I could give, all these books are effectively trying to be like James Bond in mm-hmm. Casino Royale. Did you ever see that yeah. one? Yeah. Great movie. The way he talked to that Italian chick before he got an Aston Martin and drove her in a circle, mm-hmm. that is like picture perfect game. Yep. He kind of gives her a hard time. He jokes with her. He almost insults her, but not quite. Then he gives a smile, holds eye contact, is charming, and he, like, boom. There was no doubt. She had a boyfriend. Like, there was no, like, we're going to get married. That was game, right? And I think that this guy who, like, he's fully said he's autistic, but Mm -hmm. just, let's just put it at what it is. He just lacks the social awareness, is either not understanding what he's actually doing or he's doing something that he's not saying in the Humans of New York Post. I lean a lot more towards I, – I, I wouldn't give him that much of a benefit of the doubt because I think when you're describing your own behavior as manipulative and that you're putting the other people down, that is – you know. So if, that's what I'm saying. He's probably yeah. doing something else besides yeah, yeah, yeah. the game that he well, – That's the, right. Yeah. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, the yeah, game yeah. – I say that in quotes because yeah. I don't like that type of game. But that is – right? That's teasing. That's building attraction. Yep. But that isn't inherently manipulative. So there's – sort of another layer to this, right? Like when you think of g- 
guys with thousands of numbers in their phones who are constantly trying to get laid. There is an assumption there, and then when you add the word manipulation to all of that, the assumption here is that he is promising more than he is actually delivering, right? right. Like, that's the manipulation here. Is that if any of these women knew that he had thousands of numbers in his phone of women that he's trying to sleep with or has slept with, things would probably not go forward for him. Do you think so? Do you not? That was a great, great, great back and forth. Bro. That was like a sitcom. Yeah. No. So, well, yes and no, right? Because just a minute ago, you were using that example, which I liked. Like you go to a club with a lot of attractive women. You have attractive mm-hmm. women around you. Like that women like men who are wanted, mm-hmm. right? So I've actually talked about this on the podcast before. A lot of the prize for a woman in locking down a guy, because again, a woman controls the dating marketplace for the majority of her 20s, majority of into her 20s, right? is getting the guy that everybody wants. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because that's like, damn, I got the prize. That's why... So, yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. But I'm thinking if you know that the person who is sweet-talking you and nagging you and this and that has a thousand numbers in their phone, you probably would become much more aware of the fact that you're just another notch in their belt. Your armor would definitely be... That's why you would not want to proceed is because you see... You okay. see what's what's what he's actually what what he, what he's about. So you look at him more like he's just hunting for sex as opposed yep. to being the guy that women want to fuck. That's right. Yeah. Got it. Got Beca- it. Got you it. become okay. more aware yeah. of probably what what they're after in the situation. Right. And like in wedding crashes, they exaggerate it a little bit in terms of these dudes completely lying about their identities. I think right. in real life, people are not literally making up who they are, but some the, do. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely plenty of exaggeration in terms of. The kind of job that you have, the kind of money that you make, the kind of circles you run into and all that stuff. You know, there's always this line of, of again, it just, it, it matters how far it departs from reality. Is that it's only natural that you be trying to play yourself up in some way or another um, when you're trying to, you know, Impress a court someone. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but if it departs far enough that even you recognize it as manipulation, then that's when you know it's too damn far. You right. Know? Um and, and for me, just to add on to that, like mm-hmm. I always looked at – and I used like the nice guy example before mm-hmm. because – and you actually kind of – you made a good point in that like a nice guy is theoretically being nice not just to you know fuck. He's being nice yeah. because he sees them being together and they would be a mutually yeah. beneficial. And if you were nice yeah. – I mean look, that's the same thing, right? That still falls down to manipulation. If you're pretending you're this loving, caring, kind person and then the second – you're done having sex, you're like, all right, that was all, that's all I wanted. Well, so that, that's kind of what it's I was going to get thing. to, yeah. right? Like, yeah. if you convince a woman that, oh, this is going to be something, you, like, really, can, like, you make her feel like you feel so strongly about her, and this is going places, and then as soon as you have sex, it goes, you know, like, see ya. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, like, the worst, the yeah. worst type of guy, right? Because, yeah. again, like, as a, as a guy with a sister, I use that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about, that's almost like my litmus test. Yeah. If somebody did what I'm doing, to my sister to, to like get her attention and win her over mm-hmm. how badly would I beat their ass yeah. right and <laughs> yep. you know at 21 when that happened with that old woman I don't think I did anything wrong I would, I would have just been like if anything to be honest with you I think that woman exhibited really poor judgment in that case um, yeah. Either, yeah either she was manipulative or she exhibited poor judgment I find it I find it hard to believe that a woman in her 30s dating a guy who's 20 21 would sort of really think oh we have you know would not go into this thinking right that this guy might not be serious about a long-term relationship you know like that has to be part of your mindset going into something like that looking back i think it was more the shock of me being like 
no, nah, I'm good. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. oh, no, no. Like, I just wanted to have fun. Like, yeah. that I – because she definitely had other guys chasing her, but it was just like mm-hmm. I didn't want to chase her. I just wanted to have sex with her. Yeah. And that was what I thought the arrangement was. Yeah. So I think looking back, that was the case. But the way she made me feel about it mm-hmm. um, changed the way I did things moving forward. And even then, like, I give myself an out. Like, I don't think that was wrong of me. But it mm-hmm. did – I didn't like the negative feelings that are associated with it yeah. because it took away from the whole fact that – I met this girl. She was a front desk person at my buddy's apartment. She was like worked a de- she was a defense contractor during the day, but she picked up an extra job because she was staying for a house. She was older. Uh, there was a lot of factors going into it that made this so cool. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like she yep. knew how old I was. It wasn't like I was pretending to be something I wasn't. You yep. know. And then that kind of took away the the fun of it. You know, I was like, oh, like she didn't really enjoy this yeah. at the end of the day the way I did, right? Yeah. Like in the moment she did, the next morning she did. But the next week she didn't. So that was how I made the adjustment going forward. Yeah. And I do think that's lacking in a lot of like these pick yourself up by the bootstrap, like, you know, these incel communities, this is what they need to, this is how you do it. Or you have no success for women. This is how you get successful for yeah. women. And it's like, I think success needs to be defined in a mutually beneficial way for it to actually be success. And what I mean by that is like, success isn't you get laid, right? Success is you have sex with somebody who wanted to have sex with you and who was happy to have sex with yep. you. Afterwards, once all is said and done, whatever it right. is that you're in for, that you were honest enough in your approach. I mean, that's the thing. It's not about, it's not a verbal cue, right? Right. There's, in the aftermath of the Me Too movement, there's a lot of caricatures about what consent oh, yeah, must talk look about like this. Talk at about this point, this you know? About, there's always this this idea that, oh, because it's it's... 2019 now there's this me too movement that somehow that before you have sex you have to bring out a contract or verbally say hey listen we're about to have sex do you consent please you know it's it's consent is almost never verbal in these situations right sometimes non-consent is verbal sometimes it's a yo that's not what i want to do that gets communicated verbally but it doesn't have to be the whole idea of consent is something that everybody really understands i mean unless of course you're autistic or you have a social disability of some kind we all know when somebody's into something and when they're not and to me it's very similar to talking about sort of mutually beneficial it's about trying to be sensitive to what the other person is in this for and if you're at a club and a girl wants to go home with you you don't need to worry too much about making clear that you're not looking for a long-term relationship because the entire dynamic is you met an hour ago and now you're heading home. It's understood what everybody's in this for. Mm. As opposed to a girl that you work on for a period of a month trying to get her to sleep with you and then when she does go, oh, I never said anything about long-term relationships. Like, yeah, you didn't verbally talk about explicitly about anything about a long-term relationship, but your dynamic in building up towards getting laid suggested that you were interested in this person for a long-term thing and that to me is the difference is that ultimately when we talk about consent or lack of consent or we're talking about whether you persuaded somebody to sleep with you or manipulated them into it it's about the entire dynamic that you have with them it's about being able to perceive socially what this person is looking for and making sure that you're not deceiving them into giving something that they don't want to give or vice versa into yeah, you're not. You're basically being honest with them about your intentions. And again, honesty is not verbally declaring everything that you're looking for, but just that you're not showing one thing. You're not fainting. You know, a mm-hmm. jab and throwing a hook. That's hey, yeah, no, no, that's just, good. That's good. It's uh, yeah. So I, I think most people understand what you know. 
you you have a feeling during these situations of what the other person is looking for and as long as you're not trying to exploit their desire for a relationship in order to get laid and then bounce i think there's nothing immoral about one night stands and whatever like it's all it's it's fairly understood i think from the dynamic of what the other person is looking for right and i i think you worded that the other night but you said it perfectly and i think that's important especially in this era you know where like for some people if they regret it all of a sudden it's like well that was unwanted that is like you can regret something that two nights prior you really wanted it's just it just didn't pan out maybe the way you thought it would yeah right but let me ask you about this we i, I brought this up post nut syndrome mm-hmm. i've kind of explained to you what it is and mm-hmm. for the listeners this is a very real phenomena that happens with guys where they could be so into a woman so so into a woman and then as soon as they are done having sex with them in some in some cases while they're having sex with them and others after a couple times they lose interest and I thought you had a really good answer to that that I wanted everybody to hear too because I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah. It's happened to me a lot in my life and I just can't quite figure it out. But. And I think that sometimes it's sort of the impression the other person gets is that, oh, you were just playing me to get laid right. and that's why you've lost interest and are moving on. When in reality, you feel like you genuinely were interested and then just afterwards you, you lost the You meant everything you say, yep. you said, but you lost the yep. interest, yeah. My speculation on this would be that the interest from the get-go was purely sexual tension. And so people are under the impression that they're having great conversations and getting along. But the only reason why these conversations are enjoyable is because there's underlying sexual tension. And that had it not been for that tension, all that relationship and connection that you look back on as being really meaningful really would not have been meaningful had it been, you know, somebody that you were not attracted to. You know, that ends up being a huge part of why that connection felt so good Mm. um yeah there's and i mean it's incredibly unfortunate when it happens if the other person develops the wrong idea of what the intentions are it's just it's kind of a sucky situation for everyone but it is what it is i think it's just maybe if there's anything to be said about it it's training yourself to spot genuine interest in people versus sexual tension that is masquerading as genuine interest in someone and learning how to spot that difference dude so that is so key and like another personal – so when I first got to AU, there was this one young lady. Uh, I, I won't even say her name. I owe her an apology though because mm-hmm. pretty much what happened was we were friends for a long time and then she became single. And we always kind of had this connection and then we hooked up a few times and then like the second time, I literally was – I lost interest halfway through. Like mm-hmm. I still finished having sex. No. But I remember thinking to myself like I just want her to leave. I hadn't even finished yet, and I was like, yeah. I just want her to leave. And we ended up having a fallen out after that. And I tried to like be friends again. And when we were friends, the dynamic was, uh, Charles, who'd you hook up with this week? And I'd yeah. ask her, and we'd shoot the shit. And I tried that, and that burned so quickly, yeah. <laughs> so quickly. And uh, you know, we I saw her once, and I kind of like I, you know I apologized, but not really. I never gave her like that hard apology that I wish I, yeah. I did. And maybe I still will. Maybe I'll fucking send a message on something. But um, that for me was the line where I was just like, okay, like you got a problem. Like at that mm-hmm. point, I'd been with enough women to know like this is a common theme. Yeah. And I was like, I got to fix this. And then I thought I had it until and I, I met that other woman who was mm-hmm. older and she still had some uh, somewhat negative feelings, yeah. right? What, for whatever reason. Looking back, probably didn't have to do with me, yeah. but they were still there. So I think like I got lucky because I trapped, I like was like, yup okay, you have this as a problem. You got to fix it. You know, and I, I definitely started keeping things lighthearted and fun. And then when you do meet somebody, 
you don't like you recognize it immediately. Like God for, for grace, like it was clear, like I just wasn't losing interest. I was getting more and more interested every time I hung out with her, every time I talked to her, it's like nothing else mattered, you know? But for others, it's definitely been times where I was just like, Oh fuck. Like it happened. And it, it's a weird thing because, and I think you worded it quite well. Like, I think that's what it really is. It's a, it's inherently sexual, but everything is masked as not being sexual. Um, but it's just a tough one. It's just a tough one to figure out and it's a tough one to put your finger on. Yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think that flows with the conversation, but your answer to it is, is key. But I got a question for you now. So we've kind of established what we feel is male manipulation, right? We're just manipulation in game and it's uh, like the mm-hmm. difference between, I should say the difference between game and manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a really big difference between being high value, having good game and then being a piece of shit. And then I think below being a piece of shit is being like a manipulator, like an emotional yep. manipulator, right? Yep. Somebody who makes you think something is going to happen. You're going to date. He, they convince you of all these things, all these things, and then they go and they turn out to lie. Or right? even worse, like in long-term relationships, when you keep somebody trapped in a relationship oh, God. Yeah. by, yeah, essentially breaking the yeah. other person emotionally down and making them feel that putting up with an emotional abuser is still too good for them, you know, right. that out there on their they're own still they're lucky. probably not even yeah exactly but they're not worth anything better fuck that's that's the worst that yes but what about this right so let's say you have a woman who's very promiscuous mm-hmm. right she, she meets a guy and normally she's down for one night stands mm-hmm. you know all that this and the other thing but she makes this other dude wait he's chasing sex chasing for sex chasing for sex and she just makes him wait makes him wait makes him wait and then when they have sex it's very plain and relaxed and basic and she kind of transforms her promiscuous personality to one that's very conservative mm-hmm. all in the attempt to gain his commitment yep right do you feel that that's manipulation man okay that's layered because what is the intention here so are we saying that she decided after being promiscuous that she wants to settle down and so she's pretending to be more conservative yes so she's used to going for a certain type of guy who's Lighthearted, easygoing, fun, good sex, all that. But now she wants a provider, somebody who's going to take care of her and, and everything like that. And she knows that he's, you know, a little bit more conservative. He's not as outgoing. So that promiscuous personality she had and everything she learned through that, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, yeah. she can't show off, and she has to kind of come off like she's this uh, very conservative woman. Look, if the situation we're describing is somebody's trying to build a long-term relationship with someone where they're together and married and part of that marriage is based on you hiding who you were and sort of not being clear about your past, I think that probably is a problem, you know? Um, I don't think that spouses owe each other specific numbers on how many people they slept with and the names and the addresses and everything like that, but I think having a general sense of who the person is that you're committing your life to, that you're going to be producing, reproducing children with, seems to be sort of a, a requirement of trust, I think, on some level. So would you say it's it's like manipulation if I I would say yes. I'll tell you what I yeah. I was gonna answer first yeah. but you said yeah yes I feel it is manipulation mm-hmm. and it's kind of delicate because in 2019 it's like I don't want people to think that's slut shaming right because yeah. it's two completely different things it's effectively you act a certain way mm-hmm. and then when you find somebody who will only respond to you if you didn't act a certain way you change the way you act right yeah. Then taking Although, it, yeah, like okay. theoretically, the change could be legitimate. Is that you decide that this is what you want? I think it's it's sort of the dishonesty about the past that would be an issue for a long term right. relationship. But if you're like, hey, listen, like we accept it from a guy 
a lot more that if a guy's promiscuous and he finds a girl that he really likes, you can say, hey, listen, I used to fool around a lot, but you're the one I want to be with. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm willing to settle down. Like that's, we accept that as a legitimate change. And I worry, so the only reason why this is complicated for me is that we live in an environment where women are slut shamed. Mm -hmm. And so they might feel like they can't be dishonest that if a guy did it, we would be like, oh, you're a saint. You're changing your ways and you're settling down because you found the one you love. But if a woman tries to do it, we think, oh, nope, can't get over your, your slutty past. You know, so that's dealing with a sexist society on some level, I think, is the, is the complicating factor here. So are you familiar with what pair bonding is? Mm-mm. All right. So pair bonding is almost exclusively uh, used to describe women. Mm-hmm. And it's their ability to bond with a partner. Mm-hmm. Right. It's their direct psychological correlation between another human being and their way, their ability to communicate, trust, be with that person and effectively they just like commit to them yeah. right at its core. There's, and I don't have the study in front of me, but there's legitimate evidence of the more promiscuous the woman, the less her ability to pair bond, mm-hmm. right? Effectively being the more promiscuous she is. There's a direct co- correlation between a promiscuous woman and cheating, mm-hmm. right? There's not that same correlation with guys. Their pair bonding has nothing to do with how many women they're with, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of that to bring it back to biology is biological, right? Mm-hmm. Like for men, it was just about planting your seed as often as you could with as many different people as you could for reproduction. Whereas women, it was finding the best quality mate to reproduce with mm-hmm. and then sticking with them and being protected for and uh, protected and provided for. Yeah. Right. So in this case, it's like, and I've seen that by the way, like I've seen that the complete opposite of that. And I should actually clarify because I don't want somebody to think I'm making a hard point. There was this, I'm going to give you two examples. There's one woman I knew who had been with a lot of, a lot of guys, but anytime she got into a relationship, she wouldn't hide it. She, her personality didn't change. She was still doing her thing. It's not like she, you know, used to suck a lot of dick. Then she gets in a relationship. She doesn't suck dick anymore. Right. (laughs) This is super crude, but that's a good example. She was the same of everything and she wouldn't cheat. She was very loyal. Guys would hit her up and she would show them no interest. Like I had, I had so much respect. I still do to this day. I shouldn't say past tense. She's still alive. <laughs> and on the other side of things, there was this young lady who uh, her parents, her father was like a preacher and her mother worked at the church, right? She was a second grade teacher. Already you're like, oh my God. We, we already know where this is going. Right? <laughs> what, did she just make apple pie all day, right? Yep, the rebellion is inevitable. Yep. Dude, and, and she had been dating this guy for eight years and things were going great and blah, 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 blah. And I met her and at that point she was engaged. She hid her engagement ring from me. So we worked together. So anytime I was around or on days I was, we were on the same shift, the ring would come off and I was none the wiser. I'm not big on social media. We wouldn't follow, you know, blah, 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 blah. And after two weeks, we started like hooking up and everything. And I thought this was like a good solid thing. And it was only as her wedding day approached that she made this post that I happened to see, (laughs) right? Meaning she added me as a friend and then posted about it. Yep. It was like, holy shit, right? And it like blew my mind. And it really affected my ability to trust because everything I had thought, effectively everything I just told you, in this case turned out to be total bullshit. I was like, what? This is ridiculous, right? Now, I didn't know what I told you at the time, but the reason I bring all that up is because on an individual basis, I think nothing holds true. Mm -hmm. But by a general rule of thumb, this seems to be, there seems to be that correlation. And this is why you've heard, have you heard of like dual mating strategies? Uh Uh-uh. 
Okay, so it kind of like directly plays off that. Yeah. I'm thrilled that I know something that you don't, by the way. Yeah. This is a first <laughs> That's listener. That's great. So, Believe me, there's a lot more. But <laughs> go on. So dual mating strategy is when you're younger, effectively like you're younger, you have a lot of fun. When you're older, you find somebody to commit to who's going to provide that. and protect, right? Mm-hmm. And in this situation, and I think a lot of this has to do with dating economics, that those fun years are when all the like all the fun stuff happens. And then when you settle down, you kind of like settle into a different person, mm-hmm. right? Meaning you don't do those same things with this person that you had done with all the people prior. Yeah. And that is the part where I feel is the manipulation, mm-hmm. right? That's not to say you can't get tired of doing stuff, but a lot of it, so much of it is based off attraction. And what you're attracted to throughout your age some people will say changes. I don't really believe that, right? Like when you're in your early 20s, you're going to be attracted to a very different guy than when you're in your 30s. But I don't really think that's the case, right? I think it's more the things you value change. But your physical attraction to somebody, you might be more attracted to somebody your age. Women are known to be attracted to men who are in corresponding ages. It's actually, I disagree. With, I mean, look, it's a little anecdotal. Who knows? Hit me, hit me. No, I love anecdotal Just stuff. when I... Like, you know, you have actresses that are your type at a certain age and everything like that. And then, like, over time, that has changed for me. When I look at the kind of women that I thought were stunningly beautiful when I was 18, they're not the ones that I have that opinion of now and vice versa. There were also women that I did not think were all that, you know, like, I don't get why people think this woman's pretty. And then, like, older is like, no, never mind. I changed my mind on that. So it's it's funny. But who knows? In general, the maybe what you're getting at is not necessarily so much just, like, a physical face type. Yeah. But the kind of guy that you're sexually attracted to. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. There was a study that, that our man Tim Poole pulled up. Mm-hmm. He didn't write the study, but it was from OkCupid, and it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's actually hilarious because it's just like, it's the most ridiculous thing. So they interviewed people on the site from 18, I think, to 56, mm-hmm. or, or 50, it wasn't 60 yet. It was in the 50s. Yeah. And they asked what their ideal mate age was like what they find the most attractive of the opposite sex mm-hmm. like what age range and every single guy on the list answered between 21 and 23 <laughs> right three yep. years yeah from 18 to in their 50s let's say 59 yep. they all answered between 21 and 23 i think one one of those answers was 24 mm-hmm. right this was done like it was like a case study or a sample study of like 70 different people yeah but for women as they got older, the guy was either a couple years older, a couple years younger, and fluctuated. Yeah. You know, when a woman was in her early 50s, she felt a man in his, uh, or like 50, she felt a man in his like mid to late 40s was most attractive. When yeah. she was in her 20s, she thought a guy in his 30s was most attractive. So it was really, it was an interesting study. But, and I, I felt like I really kind of steered off from the original point I was making, but the, the idea of all of like the different types of attraction people have and everything that goes with it and the dual mating strategy of, you know, when you're younger, you have a lot of fun. When you're older, you look for somebody to settle mm-hmm. with. Pair bonding, kind of being like the the less promiscuous you are, the more able you are to commit, which I, I kind of proved wrong with my <laughs> anecdotal evidence, yeah. but there, there are studies to this that are smarter than Charles's, so mm-hmm. for what it's worth. But I bring that all back to, I think that if for a guy, you're making some, you're leading somebody to believe that you're some someone you're not or you're looking for something that you're not just to get laid. I do think that's manipulation. Yep. You've established that. But I also think it's manipulation if you're a woman and you give somebody the perception that you're somebody who you weren't, right? Mm-hmm. You're somebody now who, I've only been with a couple guys. I've never done this before. I'm nervous. Whereas two months before you met this person, you were getting 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, that's lying, right? I've never done this before right. or, you know, whatever, this or that. Like, just that's in some cases. But I get the verbal versus... Right, I was going to say lying through giving. lying through omission yeah. a little bit more. But yeah. but that, that to me, I think, is is manipulation all the same. Yeah. You know, and I just, in 2019, it seems like it's a little bit hard to say that. Like, we were both a little hesitant, and I felt mm -hmm. bad. I didn't want you to think I was no, putting no. you on the spot. It, but. but it's a legitimate question. And honestly, it's... Interesting for me, like I prefer to be put on the spot in these situations because if I have an instinct to be uncomfortable with something, to then dig a little deeper and figure out why I'm uncomfortable with it. Or sort of, you know, and really the only conclusion that I could reach is because we hold women to a different standard in our society. And if we held them to similar standards, you know, then we, we allow for certain attitudes from guys that are far more excusable in a way that we don't find them from women. And again, I think that is based in part on our evolutionary biology, on the way our society developed, but also a lot on sort of... Like societal our, norms and pressures? Yes, and including, to some extent, I think Hollywood romanticization is plays a part into why many relationships fail, is because I think that they have developed an unrealistic standard for what a loving relationship is supposed to be, you know? The idea. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because sure. I just feel like that's such a good topic. Because mm -hmm. to, we've been talking so much about like sex and flogging. Like that's yeah. actually a really good topic to kind of break into. So yeah, there's there's the thinker called Alain de Baton. He's a, a great name. British. It is a great name. Uh, British guy. I imagine French origin, given the name. And his take on relationships is very very interesting. And basically, his enemy is. Uh, romantic culture. He thinks it's detrimental to long-term relationship happiness because we've developed this, you know, love has come to replace God, you know, in a sense. There was a time when you build your life around what's, you know, you want to get to the afterlife, to heaven, and as that has fallen out of public life to some extent, as societies are becoming more secular, that now love is the ultimate good, and love is everything that you think of in an angel just completely pure and you know never ending and all that stuff and that against that standard that is set in Hollywood where every movie ends after a great romantic climax pursuit and you finally get the girl and everything is great and then movie ends is like you never deal with what a real relationship is like after that point moving forward right and so the expectation is there isn't the boredom and frustration and annoyances of a relationship and that when you have those, that's such a drastic departure from you end up feeling like there's something wrong in your relationship because that's not love is supposed to be magical and this is not magical. This is just two people living together and what the fuck. So I think that there are expectations, you know, societal expectations are a huge factor in how we run relationships. Have you ever seen The Notebook? I have not seen The Notebook, although by your recommendation, I do want to see it. So, All right. So yeah. first off, it's an amazing movie, mm -hmm. right? Up until about 12 minutes left to go. It mm -hmm. ends really good, actually. It ends. The ending is going to be – it'll make you tear up. But yeah. uh, I'm going to give a spoiler alert for a movie that's came out in 2006, so whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole premise is this guy, Ryan Gosling, you know, him. he was in love with this girl, Rachel McAdams. And then he went away to the war. They were 18. And then he wrote her a letter every single day. But her mother took them and held them because he was from a poor family and she was mm. from money. And uh, that was that, you know. And she ended up meeting this guy who was 
like a stud, very handsome, was an officer in the military. You know, they hit it off. They were in love. They got engaged to be married. And then Noah comes home and they bump into Noah, Noah, uh, Ryan Gosling mm-hmm. comes home and he bumps into Rachel McAdams. And they have this like reconnection, right? And it's written by an author, Nick Nicholas Sparks. Mm-hmm. And the reason I know it, because he's got a habit of writing this bullshit, yeah. which is probably what, what was the guy's name? The, the British guy? Uh, Alain de Baton. Yeah. The Baton. Yeah. Alain de Baton. Yep. Oof, man. I, That's a, yeah. I'm glad you said it again, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost said something about a trombone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what happens is, in this like epic romantic situation, Ryan Gosling and Herb, they make out, then they have sex, and it's like this amazing moment, and everybody's like rooting for him. And the only thing I could think about was they didn't even try to make this other guy come off bad. He was a, this, her fiance was yeah. like a great dude, stand up gentleman. Like he was the man, and she just like pretends that she's confused, has an argument with him, breaks up with him, then goes and she ends up staying with with Ryan Gosling. And yep. it's like, did we have to have collateral damage? Did we have to make that seem like that was okay? Like this dude was about to spend the rest of his life with the love of his life, and then she was like, oh by the way, uh, just cheated on you for this dude I was hooking up with in high school. So. See ya, yep. And like, deal with it. It's like, why? Why is this like such a common theme? I have the opposite complaint. Hit me, hit me. I don't like movies like Wedding Crashers, where they have to make the fiance a complete and total jackass. I was gonna bring this up. I was gonna bring this up. Well, Rachel McAdams is in that. And that's they make Bradley Cooper this like asshole, and it's like, oh God, he 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 was he mistreated her, he cheated on her, so she's got to go for uh, Owen Wilson. It's like. Why why do you have to do that? Why do you have to make cheating a part of it? I think it's dealing with the reality of the world that we live in, you know? Cheating is so incredibly common. It's 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 out there so much that I think it would almost be to not have portrayals of that kind of shit happening in movies would be really missing a big part of of our experience as human beings. Um, Damn, that sucks to hear. Yeah. It's I think it boils down to the fact that monogamy is difficult you know we've had this conversation about there's always this debate about people who say you know people who are in open relationships say well monogamy is not natural so that's why we have an alternative arrangement well the alternative arrangement is not natural either you know (laughs) i don't think there's anything natural about your spouse hooking up with somebody else and you being cool with it that's not right right, right, right. instinctively that's infuriating you're biologically not developed to be okay with it but when you look at apes you know like there's always if you're looking for nature Let's look at chimpanzees or apes that are related to us. What do they do? What's their arrangement? And frankly, their arrangement is exactly the same as our arrangement, which is chaos and conflict. There isn't there isn't a peaceful state of nature that this thing we're, we're looking for that's right. supposed to be, oh, if only we our relationship was natural, everything would be fine. It's like there is no fine. You're dealing with either the unsatisfaction of being able to hook up with whoever the hell you want, in a monogamous relationship, your hands are tied, and so there's something bugging you about the fact that, hey, I can't have fun whenever I want to, I miss novelty sex with somebody new, all that stuff. That's, you know, a burden in a sense. Mm-hmm. And if you let go of that burden and say, that's not the kind of relationship I want, I want to be able to do whatever the hell I want, then you're missing out on trust and loyalty and all these other things that we also need. It's exactly the same as. To bring it full circle, the example that we started this whole podcast with, the lion and the deer, is that yes, dude. if the lion eats the deer, you say that's natural, the lion is supposed to eat the deer, and if the deer escapes from the lion, you also say that's natural, the deer is supposed to escape from the lion, that's what the deer is 
you know, the reason why deer evolve to be fast and agile is so that they can get away, get, you know, escape prey. Otherwise, you know, they're not sheep. They're not just standing there. And so nature is conflict to some extent, and we all have to struggle. And part of, you know, cheating is so common and finding a mate that you can truly fully trust. I mean, you described that situation you were in where the, you know, someone who was effectively your girlfriend was actually engaged and you had no idea, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Crazy, man. Yep. It's, Props to her. Jesus. It's, it, it, it speaks to something. The fact that humans are so good at lying tells you about what a fundamental aspect that is of human culture, that this shit is rampant. And, you know, when we were talking about chimpanzees, that's what chimpanzees have. They have societies where they attempt to be monogamous, where there's cheating, and then when cheating is discovered, there are fights and apes die. Like, it's fucking conflict. Nature is conflict, you know? Um, And meeting someone that you can never know anything with a thousand percent certainty, but coming to understand human beings enough that when you're with someone, you have a pretty solid level of trust in that person. That is, in my view, a special thing to find. It's not, I don't, I don't think it's easy. Hmm. I think a lot of people will tell you they love you and they will mean it when they say it, but you have to sort of be aware of human weaknesses and personality types and all that stuff. And I think that when you find someone where loyalty to them really lies above all, that actually is a special fucking trait. And when you see it, you're like, holy shit, that's not something I can easily find. And I think it counts for a lot. Mm. Um, and I, But I totally understand why people miss it. It's, it's not easy to spot, and it's easy to be fooled by declarations of love. Right. And then when the going gets rough, people are not the people that you met when everything was rosy and new and fresh and lovely. Mm. So I have, I have one more question then, and then I want to ask you a little bit about the state of societies because I feel like there's just shit going on that people don't understand. <laughs> is, yep. In regards to cheating, and it fucking sucks to hear that. I feel like I'm cursing a lot this episode, but it sucks to hear that because like you're right, and I've seen it, and I've I've been on both sides of it. I've mm-hmm. been, well, I've actually I've never cheated, but I've been cheated on, and I've also been the guy that they somebody who was cheating was hooking up was with, hooking yeah. up with, right? Sometimes I didn't know, sometimes I did. You yeah. know, I was I'm not I don't have any yeah. commitments. But what are your thoughts on people who say? You know, if you're if you're married, you cannot like if you're cheating like that's fucked up. But if you're in a relationship and you're not married yet, you're still like I was told that like yeah you you know what man you're not married you're still single. It's just what you do is your word. Like what do you think about you understand what I'm trying to say? I I think that elevates marriage to some kind of holy religious status, which I don't believe in at all. You know, marriage is something that you officially declare like it's 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 a party that your family's hold together and you're announcing to everyone that what you have is permanent but ultimately a relationship is whatever understanding that you and your partner are under mm. and even if there are no rings involved if the understanding that you and your partner have is that we're exclusive then the expectation is you're exclusive and i don't think that cheating would be cool in that situation obviously it's amplified when you're married for logistical reasons mostly you've announced your exclusivity to your entire families and to the world right. and you've tied your finances together somebody probably changed their name you know like there's there's so much to it that at that point cheating is is a step i can see how it's a little worse but i would not go as far as to say that during relationships if you're leaving the other person that you're with under the impression that you're exclusive that then it's cool to just like do whatever the fuck you want without their knowledge so it's interesting that you 
so you went the other way with it, not in regards to like your opinion on it, but I think some people will say like, oh, it's just a relationship. Mm -hmm. But you said it's just marriage, right? Like yeah. marriage is not some holy can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because most most people, sure. just so I'm clear, but I shouldn't ask you to elaborate and then start talking. That was that was bad form. But what I mean, I should elaborate. Like most people, are like oh, it's just you know, you're just boyfriend and girlfriend. It's not a big deal. Once you get married, then it gets real serious. And yep. you're kind of saying, fuck that. It's serious. Just yeah. marriage is making it permanent. It's, yeah, it's it's whatever you and your partner agree on, right? Like whatever it is. I feel like people who try to draw that extremely hard line between marriage and pre-marriage are playing a game of a technicality, you know? So, like, what about during the engagement? Is that better or worse? Mm. You know, to me... That's the gray area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's the lead-up to this big declaration about your... I mean, you're effectively, when you're engaged, you've already declared. Like, it's... it's it is... It's, it's ceremonial. Mm. And when you call somebody's a woman's father and say I'd like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage and we already talked about it and she's okay I know even that is actually kind of patriarchal and traditional but whatever it's, <laughs> it's what we do um, it's but, out of respect <laughs> yep but forget the father part you and your partner sit down and go alright you're the person I want to be with here's a diamond ring again I fucking hate diamond rings I played the game because it is the game that we have to play in society God, I'm just now. Now it's I'm, I'm have so many issues. <laughs> so many I'm like, side issues. I'm getting y'all fired up. <laughs> so many side issues, but anyways, when you present the engagement ring, whatever the fuck form that takes, be symbolic <laughs> rubber band. I don't give a shit. And you just decide that you're declaring that you're the person I want to be with, and we should be together forever. And if family's involved in everything, like that's if you're openly engaged, that to me is not very different from being married. Mm. You know the the vows that you give at a ceremony that's that's a ceremony that's just the game that you play you know it's um the performance art part of declaring your love to someone you've established that stuff between you and the person in private already this is just making it and public. then you go all right now let's go perform for all these people and make these open <laughs> declarations but yeah it's 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 about the dynamic and look i get again monogamy is really hard it's not easy um you're there's nothing more exciting in life, at least from a dude's perspective, and I'm sure many women would probably also agree, than the rush of sort of like a new hookup. That's, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And giving that up forever is a tall order, and but it, you're also doing it for the right reasons. If, you know, for me, like marriage also involves starting a family and everything, that also is a really big deal. Because ultimately, that is what your DNA is designed for, is the fact that no one body can live forever. We're just end up developing too many fucking health issues and grow decrepit and eventually die off. And you're literally saying, I want to continue living on post my death. And in order for that to happen, I need to find another human who is worthy of me literally physically combining my life with them and producing a physical manifestation of our lives together that is a part of my DNA and my body and a part of your DNA and your body and that is going to be the new person that we're going to raise and mold and teach everything that we know so that they can carry on living after we fucking kick the bucket. That's a really big deal and if there is anything worth giving up something as fun as casual sex for that seems to be worth it. It's it's So... But you can still find ways, 
again, if people can work an open relationship out, I find that a little hard to stomach. I don't know how people can do it. You know, right. lots of these relationships do end up falling apart. Mm-hmm. But there's also space in between exclusive strict monogamy where if your girlfriend or your wife looks at somebody funny, then you're like, oh, that you're throwing a fit about it. You know, there's the... Uh, I'm into the um, uh, phrase monogamish of where ultimately you only have each other, but there's still room for flirtation with other people. There's still room for... Um, yeah, there's basically room to be playful outside of your direct relationship, but establishing clear lines of what you cannot cross. Mm. And that way you can keep your life interesting and exciting. And, you know, in the case of Alain de Baton, the example that he brings up um, of sort of like hanging out with your wife at a restaurant and you think the waitress is cute and then you start playfully talking about wouldn't it be fun to invite the waitress back to bed or whatever, this or that. And like you never act on it. You never actually take the step of having to deal emotionally with your partner being with somebody else because that's a very difficult thing to do. But at least you play with the idea. You deal with the excitement of it. And then at the end of the day, you know that the person you're going to bed with is your partner and that's okay. I think that was a really good, that's a really good close to this loop because it's very, I, th- I think it's a positive mm-hmm. outlook on things. So let's shift gears here. I, I'm, and like, honestly, the only thing I could say is I completely agree, yep. awesome. you know, at its core, right? Like that, yep. th- those last couple minutes, that was excellent. Um, and really well worded too, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right, Omar, any other, I mean, it's getting pretty late. Is there uh, anything else you want to touch on? I'm sure we'll have a lot more of these conversations. So we can wrap it up for now if you want. And yeah, we'll, we'll do this again soon. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Omar Badar. This podcast is sponsored by District Martial Arts, the premier mixed martial arts gym in Arlington, Virginia. DMA has expert level instruction in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, boxing, wrestling, and MMA. Come by soon for your free trial and reference this episode of The Lover and the Fighter for a special discount. I also want to thank friends of the podcast, Sorello Art, doing big things. He's got more commissions than ever going into this holiday season, but if you hurry, you could take up a few of those spots that are left. I think he probably only has enough room for three or four commissions, if that, but for the, if you come through The Lover and the Fighter, we'll make it happen. I also want to say, thank friend of the podcast, The Grace Effect. She's the producer of this podcast, and she's the producer of The Brilliantly Dumb Show, uh, a super successful podcast brought to you by my buddy, Robbie Berger. Uh, that's available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else. He's the man. She's the woman, and they're doing big things, so keep an eye on the both of them. Um, but again, don't hesitate to reach out for any social media, video production, or editing needs. And that's all for this week. This is probably our longest episode of all time, um, but we had so much to go over. Again, I apologize for the delay, but I hope everybody is happy with the quality of content we provided. Omar Badar, thank you so much for coming in, and I will be back next Wednesday on the dot this time for the next episode of Love in the Fighter.